Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast, powered by Advanced Takedown Tree Stands, episode number 206. Adam Hayes III, 200-inch bucks and where to find them. Read the moon. Please support our sponsors as they make this show possible. Today's show is sponsored by Advanced Takedown Tree Stands, Covert Scouting Cameras, The Horny Buck Seed Company, The Eurohanger, and Morse's Sporting Goods. Big Buck Registry is a virtual museum of hunting stories. We preserve a piece of Americana by interviewing and recording hunters about their hunts and experiences from across the country. And who knows, maybe we'll learn a thing or two along the way that'll help us take our hunt to the next level. Hi, this is Barry Winsel from Brothers of the Bow and Trophy Whitetail Boot Camps. I'm not really sure what a podcast is, but you're about to push play on what is now my favorite podcast podcast big buck registries deer hunting podcast hey guys this is fred bird with the national wild turkey federation and the nwtf strut zone all access podcast and i am on my favorite deer hunting podcast the big buck registry jim and christmas this is roger Ragland, and you're listening to the big buck registry deer hunting podcast welcome fellow predators to the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. My name is Jay, and I don't know if you're tuning in for the first time or the second time, or maybe you've been here for a long time. I'm just glad you're here joining us once again on the podcast and tuning in to the best deer hunting information and advice that we can find and deliver back to you so you can use it too. This week's guest is Adam Hayes III, and we're going to be speaking to him in detail or in length in just a moment. But I have a couple of housekeeping things I'd like to cover real quick before we turn to the interview. First is uh, regarding our safety harness program, a fellow by the name of Chris sent in this email. Hey guys, I discovered the podcast a few months back and I've gone back and listened to almost every episode. I like the fact that you interview guests from your everyday guy or gal that has a full-time job and only hunts a few weekends a year, all the way up to the celebrity hunters. The fact that you interview hunters from across the country brings a diversity of tactics and information not found in other deer hunting podcasts. The main reason that I'm contacting you is because I think what you guys are doing with the safety harness program is great. It is so important to get the message out, and you have taken it even one step further. I recently bought another stand and have a brand new harness and tree strap that I would like to donate to the program. I'm located in central Maine, so I can either mail it to you guys or or directly to someone in need of the harness. Thanks again for producing a great show and keep up the good work, Chris. Thank you, Chris, for your email. And Chris did send in his harnesses recently. And if you'd like to participate in the harness program, either if you have a harness to donate or a harness that you need, just email us, jay at bigbuckregistry.com or dusty at bigbuckregistry.com, and we'll, we'll set up the exchange that way. So our, our guest this week is Adam Hayes III. Adam Hayes III says that to kill a 200-inch buck, you must surgically remove them from the face of the earth. This means planning, lots of planning. The first step is actually to hunt where the big deer lives. It's a simple strategy, but an essential one. Step two through the kill shot is a bit more complex. Using the red moon phases of a product he created called the Moon Guide, Adam uses the high likelihood of daylight deer movement days to plan his hunt in conjunction with the mental thesis of the buck he pursues. 
Does Adam hunt the days when the red moon isn't present? You bet. He says they are perhaps more important than the days of the kill hunt. These are what he refers to as observation hunts. Adam is also a fan of hunting the wind to the buck's advantage, hunting outside in, and learning which tree will become the kill tree. Adam explains all these strategies in more detail during the interview, and a notebook is highly recommended. In fact, I'd say it's required. And we'll turn to the interview with Adam Hayes in just a second. But before we do that, let's turn to Jim Keller with the Deer News. The Deer News this week is sponsored by the Eurohanger. You don't have to spend big bucks to hang your big buck. Get yourself a Eurohanger. Facebook.com forward slash Eurohanger. E-U-R-O-H-A-N-G-E-R. For the Big Buck Registry, this is Jim Keller with the Deer News. Our first story this week. New York Police Report. Man received citation for deer living in his house. This story was originally featured on the U.S. News & World Report website. A Jamestown, New York man has been cited after authorities found he was keeping a deer on the second floor of his home. State Department of Environmental Conservation Officer Jerry Kinney says his office received a complaint that a neighbor was harboring a wild animal in his house. The resident told responding officers he believed it was legal to keep the white-tailed deer fawn in his house for up to six weeks before he had to release it. Officers told him this was not true and issued the resident a ticket for illegal possession of protected wildlife. Kinney says the deer was in good health and was released back into the wild. Michigan DNR confirms cougar sightings near Lansing. This story was originally featured on the MLive.com website. The state says it has confirmed the presence of a cougar in Michigan's lower peninsula. The Michigan Department of Natural Resources says the cougar was photographed near the Rose Lake State Wildlife Area in Bath Township, by a 21-year-old Hazlitt man in the early hours of June 21st. The man spotted the cougar in his headlights as it attempted to cross a road. He took a photograph as the cougar turned back from the road and into an area of thick vegetation. Where it came from isn't known, but the DNR says it's the first time the large cat species has been verified in lower Michigan. The DNR won't release the road name where the cougar was photographed, citing a request for privacy among neighbors. Questions about the animal's origin remain unanswered, said Kevin Swanson, DNR wildlife specialist and member of the agency's cougar team, which has been investigating the sighting since June 26. The DNR maintains there is no breeding population in Michigan, despite 36 cougar sightings that have been documented in the Upper Peninsula since 2008. Cougars were native to Michigan, but were wiped out in the early 1900s. Poached cougars in the UP have been genetically linked to mountain lion populations out west, Swanson said. Macaque study heightens concern about human susceptibility to CWD. This story was originally featured on the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel website and was reported by Paul A. Smith. Macaque monkeys contracted chronic wasting disease after eating the meat from CWD-positive deer, according to Canadian researchers. The findings are the first known oral transmissions of the prion disease to a primate and have heightened concerns about human susceptibility to CWD. The assumption was for the longest time that the chronic wasting disease was not a threat to human health, said Stephanie Zub, prion researcher with the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, in remarks published Saturday in the TAI, a Vancouver, British Columbia magazine. But with the new data, it seems we need to revisit this view to some degree. Zub is leading the project, which began in 2009 and is funded by Alberta Prion Research Institute at the University of Calgary. 18 macaques have been exposed to CWD in various ways to study the transmission potential of the disease. Three of the five macaques were fed infected white-tailed deer meat over a three-year period and tested positive for CWD. The meat fed to the macaques represented the human equivalent of eating a 7-ounce steak per month. Macaques that had the CWD prion injected into their brains also contracted the disease. 
those that had infected material rubbed on their skin designed to simulate contact a hunter might have while field dressing a deer have not contracted the disease. According to the Alliance for Public Wildlife, a Canadian-based wildlife conservation organization, hunting families in North America consume between 7,000 to 15,000 CWD-infected animals every year. Based on the MACAC study, Health Canada issued an updated CWD risk advisory. From the World Health Organization to the Federal Centers for Disease Control to state agencies, health officials are united in the recommendation to avoid eating meat from a CWD-positive animal. In its Deer Hunting 2016 pamphlet, the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources also advises hunters not to eat the eye, brain, spinal cord, spleen, tonsils, or lymph nodes of any deer, to wear rubber or latex gloves when field dressing carcasses, and to bone out the meat from the animal. Research on prion diseases is unveiling new findings all the time, said Dave Clausen, a veterinarian, deer hunter, and former chairman of the Wisconsin Natural Resources Board. This latest news confirms it's wiser than ever to get your deer tested and follow the precautions. That concludes this week's edition of the Big Buck Registry's Deer News. For links to the stories featured this week, please check our show notes at www.bigbuckregistry.com. If you have any ideas about future topics or have any questions about any of these topics, please email me at jim at bigbuckregistry.com. For the Big Buck Registry, this is Jim Keller with the Deer News. Well, thanks to Jim Keller with the Deer News. And without further ado, here's Adam Hayes III. Adam Hayes, welcome to the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great, man. How are you doing today? Doing very well. Doing very well. Where are you, Adam? I am at home um, just outside of Columbus in, uh, in Ohio. Our, our good uh, friend and co-host, Dusty Phillips, is down around your area, down around Dayton. So, uh, And I've been to your neck of the woods hunting deer, and uh, I'm semi-familiar with it. I don't do a lot of it, but I've been there a couple times really amazing amazing whitetail country yeah i've been very fortunate to grow up in an area that has uh well some of the biggest deer in the country i know there's there's places that have more deer but i don't think anybody has anything any bigger than what we have we've really got the the high-end deer here in central ohio really all over the state but lots of big deer um, right around columbus to chase where do you think the next world record's coming from? Uh, I'd love to think it would be coming from my hunting lease here in Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> from the, the lands that you hunt on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. That'd yep. be the perfect spot, right? That would be uh, ideal, I would think. That would be perfect. Yeah. yeah. Do you think there's, I don't a, know. You think there's a, world, a world record in Ohio? Oh, I'm sure. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if it came from Ohio or... You know, Illinois, Iowa, Kansas, maybe somewhere up in Canada. Gotcha. But I, yeah, would not surprise me at all if it came from Ohio. Okay. All right. It's an interesting concept. It's just something I want to throw out there coming from somebody that pursues the larger whitetail. And it's a, it's a constant debate. So, yeah. Yeah. So, you you are from Ohio, Adam, and you grew up in Ohio. What was What was life like for you growing up? Man, I tell you what, there there weren't as many deer um, back then uh, as there are now. I remember growing up, my dad used to take the family to one of the metro parks here around Columbus. And the highlight of the trip was they had a little fenced-in area that you could walk up to that had a, a big buck and a doe and a couple fawns in it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that that was that was the the deer in Ohio back then. I don't. Huh. I don't even remember, you know, 
how much of a herd we have. I mean, I know my dad bow hunted um, when I was a kid, and um, that was really what got me hooked. I mean, he had a bow in my hands when I was four years old and uh, haven't put it down since then. Wow. That's really why I got started in bow hunting. But, um, yeah, things have definitely changed. I, I started hunting when I was 14, and uh, I remember me and my dad would drive down to southern Ohio two hours away to deer hunt and when i was in high school i would actually drive an hour and a half one way when i got out of school to bow hunt down in southeastern ohio <laughs> and i had a couple of buddies in high school that did a lot of uh upland hunting for uh you know pheasants and rabbits and that sort of thing and they were just hunting you know little woodlots and crp fields in between the industrial parks right here outside of town and right. I'd go with them occasionally, and we'd see more big bucks than we did pheasants and rabbits. And I'm sitting here thinking, why in the world am I driving, you know, two hours to bow hunt when I've got giant deer right here in my backyard? And yeah, you know, that's that's when the, the light switch flipped for me, and I started concentrating more here around the city. And um, yeah, just never really left the uh, suburban area of Columbus, although there's a lot more pressure now uh, bow hunting than there was back then. I mean, I knew everybody that bow hunted that I knew I could count on one hand, and now I've got at least that many guys um, within earshot of me whenever I climb in a stand, you know, around town. So right. I have moved out a little bit away from town to get away from all the pressure, but uh, yeah, it's not the same place anymore. So the, the the light bulb went off when you started seeing more big deer than you saw pheasants. Yeah, it was crazy. I wish I knew back then what I know now about deer hunting and, and big deer because it was just, if you can imagine, uh, a place like Ohio and the incredible hunting around the suburbs and no pressure back then. Mm. I just I can't imagine what a guy could have done because I, I knew nothing back then. Did not know what I was doing. Did, knew just enough to be dangerous. I was hunting out of I was hunting out of tree stands that we built out of two by fours. <laughs> I see some of those relics when I'm walking around the woods now and then. Mm -hmm. it, it, it always you kind of pause, don't you, when you find an old tree stand? Like, man, I wonder what's come out of this area. And think about the the old time hunters that hunted that back in their youth. Yep. Yep. No yep. doubt. So as a child, you were it sounds like you were introduced to the bow fairly early at age four do you remember the first bow you ever shot what make and model it was i remember the bow um it was just a fiberglass long bow i remember it had it was like a marbled silver and black color with a white handle mm -hmm. i got a pretty neat picture of it standing there shooting with my dad watching when i was four i don't remember what the name or make of it is and man i wish i had still had that thing around but i yeah. i don't even remember what happened to it gotcha has bow hunting become your main method and or is does gun even enter into the equation anymore you know i go muzzleloader hunting occasionally um obviously i prefer to whitetail hunt but it doesn't bother me at all to shoot a big buck with my muzzleloader <laughs> i just don't get the opportunity that much right gotcha what do you attribute to the the popularity of bow hunting? Uh, I think the biggest thing is probably the, you know, a guy can bow hunt for, you know, here in Ohio, our season starts into September and goes all the way into the first Saturday of February. So mm. the length of the season, the amount of time a guy can spend out there bow hunting, 
I think it's probably got a lot to do with it. Gotcha. The, your father sounds like he was into hunting a little bit. Is he the person that you attribute your mentorship to, or is there are there other influences in your life? Oh, no, absolutely. If it wasn't for my dad, like I said, giving me a bow when I was four, I don't know if I would have ever got into it because that was, yeah, that was what got me started, you know, watching him pack up his stuff on the weekends, you know, uh, recurve and the, the old bear razor broadheads and, you know, his uh, buck knife and all, all the equipment that he had. I just, I was fascinated with that stuff when I was, when I was young, couldn't wait till I was old enough to go. I mean, I, I went with him for two or three years before I could even hunt myself and just sat with him, you know, when he was right. bow hunting. Right. Isn't it funny how, as a kid, all that, how fascinating all that stuff is. Yeah. I had the same experience more or less with my grandfather, my dad too, but my grandfather had all the stuff, you know, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't much. There was, it was a very simple time. It wasn't all the gear and, and gadgets, but there's some basics that you needed to have. You needed the good gun. You needed to have it well oiled. You needed to have the, some proper clothing. You needed some, the proper boots and you needed a good knife and, mm-hmm. and a rope. Now, and that was basically it for, from, but I was always like, wow, this is so amazing. I want to spend as much time with my grandfather as I can, just so I can learn from him. Sure. Yeah. If, if my dad saw me at the truck before I went out to go bow hunting these days and all the gear <laughs> I'm carrying out in the woods with right. the hunting gear and the camera gear, he'd just stand there, shake his head. Right. right. It's ridiculous how much equipment there's right. involved now. Right. Much less, you know, the the, the tree stands and, and all the, the stuff you're strapping on your back and the backpacks. and Yeah, I can't imagine what our, our forefathers would be thinking when we were about to venture into our spot <laughs> these days. Do you have a recollection of your first hunting experience ever? Oh, yeah. Yeah, first time I ever went with my dad and just sat there. We were in a little alfalfa field that the uh, farmer said he was seeing some deer come out in the back end of that field every evening and we went down there and climbed in, into a little island of trees in the in the back side of the field and sat there and i'll never forget that hearing that crunch 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 and the deer coming and how excited i got and i mean it was just a just a big doe and a couple fawns that came out and started feeding out in front of us and my dad shot over the back of the big doe and the the two young ones kind of ran behind us and he didn't have a shot at him and I don't, I must've been, I don't know, 10 or 11. And I did everything I could to try to convince my dad to give me the bow. Cause I had a perfect shot at him, but I couldn't, I couldn't have even drawn that bow back back then. But yeah, I, I remember that like it was yesterday, seeing those deer and hearing them coming and how exciting it was and being that close to those animals. It was, uh, it was a very memorable experience for me. Gotcha. It sounds like you, you were hooked from then on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt. What is your philosophy of hunting evolved into? Like, what does it mean to you today versus what it meant to you then? Man, I tell you, it's really, it's really uh, everything to me. I mean, I've, I've created a life for myself that revolves, re- revolves around hunting. I mean, the, you know, you hear a lot of guys talk about the sacrifices that they make and the money and the time and the effort they put into hunting. But I mean, I've, you know, I've I've changed careers so that I could be more involved in hunting in the hunting industry. 
know, I've, I've got a, a, a television show that I produce. I sell the advertisement for. I work directly with all the sponsors. I mean, I handle everything. It's, that's a full-time job. I run a hot lease program and manage 20,000 acres all across the state of Ohio. You know, I've got a, a product now, the Deer Hunters Moon Guide, that um, that's in its fourth year, and that's uh, that consumes a bunch of my time. And um, you know, try to still hunt and scout and uh, do all everything that's involved with you know the, just the hunting end of it. On top of all that, so I mean, basically everything I do revolves around deer hunting, and um, I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, you know, it's a job, it's a hobby, it's a lifestyle, it's everything. But um, that's that's the way I wanted it. So okay, when you were contemplating about making deer hunting your job, when it was coming from one of your hobbies, was there any hesitation at that point? When you and the reason I ask this is, I often think that well, if I take my hobby and I turn it into a job, do it? Does that mean I don't enjoy it as much? Yeah. Do you ever have any thoughts like that? Yeah, and that's that's a concern because yeah, it becomes becomes like work. But um, man, when you're able to do something that you love for a living, there's a lot to be said for that. Um, there are days when I look back at you know the career that I left after 12 years and the the job security and the, you know the retirement and and all of those things that I left behind to take a chance on doing this full time. Sometimes I wonder if I had it to do over again. If I would, because there have been peaks and valleys, um, that's a whole other conversation. But yeah, um, tough decision, but I made it and haven't looked back and, you know, work hard at it every day. And, you know, sometimes, you know, when things aren't exactly going the way that you had planned for them to go, you know, you got to take a step back and think about uh, all the opportunities that I've had over the years and things I've gotten to do that I probably would have never been able to do if I would have continued what I was doing. So gotcha. it's, it's give and take. Okay. Is there ever a time when, when you, when you look back or let me, let me rephrase that. Is there ever a moment where you feel comfortable or is it always got to make something happen? You know, it seems like every time you start feeling comfortable, that's when, right. <laughs> that's when you get, that's when you get smacked in the back of the head and get shocked back into reality. But uh, try not to get too comfortable with anything. But, um, you know, the hunting industry and the TV and the things has changed so much in the last 10 years. There's so much competition out there. And mm. if I had to start that process over again, start from scratch, I don't know if I would do it just because it's it's a different beast than it was 10 years ago. Right. I've noticed that, you know, we started the show four years ago. I've seen major changes in the last four years, and I can imagine what the changes were like prior to that compared to today. Must be even more intense. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I get emails, text messages, phone calls every week, you know, guys that are just ate up with deer hunting, you know, want to do it for a living, want to know how to get into the industry, want to know if I have any tips for them. And, you know, honestly... Unless a guy has a product to sell, um, there just really isn't the money in the hunting industry that most guys think as far as like, you know, filming your hunts and trying to sell the footage and all that. I mean, I've been doing this for almost 15 years now. And, you know, back in the day um, when I got started, 
possibly, but not anymore. I mean, there's, like I said, there's so much competition. I just wouldn't even think about it unless you have some kind of product to sell. Um, it's tough. You know, this, I go to the archery trade show every year and this was, this was really the first year where I saw where social media and the whole digital streaming of video and that sort of thing, all of that has gotten to a point where in a sponsor's eyes, that stuff is, is just as, if not more important to them as TV is, you know, that, that whole game has changed. And now it used to be where TV, that was the place to be. And that was where the sponsors wanted you. And that's where, you know, that's where everything went. But now you've got, you know, Facebook and social media and the digital streaming apps and, you know, Twitter and YouTube. I mean, sponsors want to see their stuff everywhere. And it's just a completely different animal than it was five years ago. Right. seems like this, this vlogging aspect has really taken over from where television used to be. Yeah. It's crazy, but it's here. You can't ignore it. And I think you have to adapt like you have to adapt to deer hunting strategies, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of guys out there that want to have, you know, this the the information that it's taken me 35 years to accumulate. They want all that information and they want it now. Right, right. <laughs> and your answer is good luck. <laughs> yeah, well, you gotta you gotta uh, you gotta come up with a good game plan on how to get that information to guys with all the different you know media outlets available now. And it, like I said, it's just it's not TV anymore. It's 12 different things. Right. Right. And, and, and you got to guess, right. You don't know. You know mm-hmm. That's the thing. It's like, you don't, it's changing so rapidly that you don't, oh, yeah. you don't know a, if you picked a, right. Yeah. It's a moving target. Really? I guess it's always been kind of a moving target, but now it's moving faster than it's ever. Exactly. As before. Right. I think that's my point. It's, it's always been a moving target, but now it's just moving faster. So yeah. you're going to be really on your game. So speaking of, of products, let's talk about some of the products that you've introduced, specifically the Moon Guide. Can you run us through the the development of that product and and what it means and how it works and how you use it? Sure. The the Moon Guide was... um the Moon Guide was invented by a a good friend of mine, um, Jeff Murray, who's no longer with us. Jeff lost uh, a battle with leukemia about seven years ago, probably. Um, Jeff was a big outdoor rider back in the day before, you know, social media and really before a whole lot of, uh, outdoor programming on TV. And the only way that he could get the word out was through his writing. And, um, Jeff was from Minnesota. Um, he had a incredible book called Moonstruck that he had wrote describing what he believed, um, on lunar influences on not only just deer, but all animals. Mm-hmm. And that book was, I've still got it right here at my desk and I, I read it occasionally. I learned more from that book on, on, uh, how deer move and what, how lunar influence affect them. And it was just an amazing book, such a good book. It hasn't been in print for a long time. And I, I took the time a couple of years ago to get that put into an ebook form so that guys could still, still have access to it but had a lot of conversations with jeff back in the day on his thoughts and theories and you know i was skeptical at first but i mean back then i really didn't know a whole lot about deer and just soaked up everything i could get my hands on 
And really what it's all about, you know, the moon affects everything. Um, the gravitational pull from the moon on the earth and animals and fish is, is the strongest when you have the overhead and underfoot moon. And what I mean by that is when the moon is straight up or straight down, yep. that's, that's your overhead and underfoot times. And when it's at those two points, that's when it's the closest to the earth in its rotation and has the strongest gravitational pull. And that's what triggers the tides. Um, it triggers fish to feed and it triggers animals to feed. You know, what Jeff's theory was, there's a handful of days every month when you get those specific moon times to occur at prime time. Um, those times move about an hour every day, but you have a handful of days where that overhead or underfoot will hit within, say, an hour or two hours of dawn and dusk. Right. And those are the best days every month. And I kind of coined the phrase a couple years ago, that's your red moon. You know, you get that moon uh, peaking overhead or underfoot at prime time. Those are going to be your best chance of catching a mature deer moving during daylight. And I've followed that for 20 years. I mean, I've I've watched it closer than anything else I've paid attention to. And I shot my 10th Boone and Crockett whitetail last year within three minutes of that time. I mean, I, I, there's a learning curve with it. A lot of guys don't understand it. A lot of guys think, you know, yeah, the moon, there's probably something, but they just don't really get it and understand it. But I tell you, for a guy that's interested in it and that's open to listening to it and giving it a fair shot, once you try it, you won't believe the, the, the difference. And you can go back and look at your old trail camera photos. It blows my mind the guys I talk to where they, they've been skeptical about or maybe they use it for the first time and we start talking about, you know, the biggest deer they've seen in previous years or the biggest bucks they've ever killed. And they go back, well, I killed him on this date and this time. And we look at those times and most of the time it's right on that red moon and they didn't even realize it. Right. You, know, you watch social media every year, and when those red moon days come up, there's a spike in big bucks hitting the ground every year right on that red moon. Right. You know, it's it's the most valuable information a guy could have. I honestly believe that when it comes to chasing mature whitetails. It's, it's a very interesting concept, and it's been debated between scientists and hunters for quite some time. I have, being a hunter— and understanding how some of this works. And I understand it more now than I ever have. That is, and I think it just kind of clicked in my head within the last year of how this kind of plays out. And going back a few years, I, I would look at an app and I would say, uh, looks like this is when the most movement's going to occur. But I, I was watching the app. It was telling me when it was going to be as opposed to me trying to look at the times of overhead and underfoot and dawn and dusk. That part I had not figured out. But I, I used to tell the local police department chiefs that, hey, um, you're probably going to have more deer collisions on these these particular days than any other time. And I'm like, why? I said, no, the app says so. So, and sure enough, I you know I would get a call say, hey, there's a there's a, a ten point that just got hit on the highway. Would you like to come get it? And say, I'll be right over. And it would be in that that window. So there mm -hmm. there seems to be a truth to it. And then just empirically, like under my own observation, and just said, man, there are a lot of there's a, I'm out fishing early morning. Man, there's a lot of a lot of activity today, and there wasn't last week at this exact time. And it dawned on me maybe maybe it has something to do with the overhead and underfoot. 
somewhere within an hour either side of sunrise or yeah. e- hour either side of sunset. And I looked at it I'm like, son of a gun, this is it. This is what all this stuff means. It blew my mind. So yeah. now I'm convinced because if you spend enough time outside and you can go back and ch- check the charts, you're like, okay, now it clicked. Yeah, and there's a lot of lunar charts out there that go by the go by the phase of the moon, and that's not what we do on the moon guide. It's about the position of the moon in the sky, right? And make it very simple on the guide because we'll show every day from August through January. Every day you have those two times, uh, the overhead and underfoot, and then we take it a step further and we highlight the days in red when you have that red moon, so a guy can go right to the chart. Look at the outer dial, and there you can see, you know, months in advance which weeks that red moon hits. So you can plan your summer scouting, you can plan your out-of-state hunts, or you know, maybe the, just the, your vacation time at home that you want to hunt. You know, a lot of guys got to plan that stuff months in advance at work to be able to get those those specific weeks off. And we'll even take it a step further and show guys where you need to be hunting at those times because, you know. If if a red moon hits, um, let's say you're in October and you've got a red moon hitting within an hour, two hours of of your uh, evening hunt, that's about as good as it gets. But in November, you know when you want to transition more from those typical bed to feed um, travel patterns, and you're more, you know, looking for those bucks that are rutting. You know, you want to be more looking for those movement times during the day, you know, because a buck's going to be moving any time of the day in November. And I've found over the last, especially the last five years, that when you get an overhead or underfoot moon that hits from like 10 to 2, those days seem to even be a little bit better than your typical, you know, first hour, last hour of daylight, you know, and and you're not going to be hunting the same location that you would on a feeding uh, feeding pattern you're going to want to get off those field edges get back into the cover hunting the uh the bedding areas or the transition areas in between doe bedding groups so the moon guide will give you the two times each day um, when those red moons occur and uh, and the location of where you need to be whether you need to be on a field edge a transition zone or back in the bedding area right. so right right because there's there's more to it than just the actual moon phase and and uh, the the moon phase always threw me off I'm like why did because over the years you're told oh you, you got to hunt the full moon or you got to hunt the no moon mm-hmm. uh, which may or may have some influence but it's really what you're discussing and what you're you're talking about here is overhead underfoot it's really about activity i mean when right. you boil it down to the most basic form you know if you want to kill a big deer that deer has got to live where you're hunting and he's got to be moving during daylight for you to kill him. And in order for that to happen, you've got to be hunting when those deer are going to be most active. And deer are most active when the moon and the gravitational pull is pulling those animals up to feed. I mean, it's natural. It's not a gimmick. It's Mother Nature. Right. You know, I was on vacation um, last year down in the Florida Keys fishing for tarpon um, with a good friend that uh, – that's all he does. He's as into tarpon fishing as I am into whitetails. And we're out there in the evening. And it just so happened that I had scheduled my trip right on the red moon. And I didn't even say anything about it. I just asked him point blank. I said, if you only had a couple of days 
each month to fish for your best opportunity at a really big tarp and what would you look for mm. and he was he was keen on when the tide would hit they want that tide to be moving either in or out which happens on the you know overhead or underfoot moon and he wants that to hit in the evening because there's tarp and they they're actually like a whitetail their bedding area they lay up in the in the shaded areas like underneath the bridges and that sort of thing that's their bedding area they move they move out from that into the from the in the evenings into a transition area before they head out into deep water to feed so he's looking for the tide moving at prime time he's watching the exact same thing that i'm watching fishing for those big fish on the red moon because that's when they're active you know that gravitational pull triggers the tide so he's keying on the tide instead of the actual you know overhead underfoot per se movement for for deer which was the exact same thing and it was amazing that night you could see those fish coming out and start rolling as the sun was setting right on that uh right on that overhead moon and we tore him up that night and uh yeah it was it was neat to see he was following the exact same thing I'm doing, just you know, keying on something a little different, not really understanding that the tide is because of that overhead moon. And um, yeah, fishing, whitetails, all animals, everything is 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 keying on those on those on the gravitational pull. That's what gets them up. That's what gets them moving. That's what gets them feeding. And that's really what I concentrate on more than anything. I know a lot of people have their own ideas on what triggers the rut. You know, the peak breeding, the chasing phase, all that stuff. I honestly, I never had a lot of luck hunting in November until I started throwing all that out the window and just concentrated on key movement periods every day. Right. I want to make sure I'm in my stand when that when that red moon hits. And that's when I started having a lot more luck in November. Right. Isn't it fascinating how much creatures are affected by this? And as humans, I'm not sure we can feel any of that. I don't, it doesn't seem to trigger my hunger pattern, but it certainly seems to, uh, through observation, to, to work. And you saw it with fishing. I see it with fishing too, with, with stripers, uh, or even, I, I can even time it to like tuna fishing in some scenarios. It's actually, it's a fascinating phenomenon if you know the charts and then you compare it to when your activity level peaks, no matter yeah, what you do, yeah. it's kind of crazy actually. But if you didn't know any better, if you didn't read the book, if you didn't read the charts, you didn't have the moon guide, you wouldn't necessarily know that this is a crucial piece of information that you, you need to have as a hunter. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, it's the most valuable information a guy could have right. um, every year and it's cheapest product that a guy could buy. I, right. I, right. you know, it's funny. I started using it probably 12 years ago for my summer scouting. Um, when I just got into the TV industry, um, the very first year I was on uh, a giant buck and I desperately wanted to get video of that deer for the TV show. I was doing skyline camouflage, had a show hunting the horizon that I produced for a couple years for them. And I just, like I said, I desperately want to get some footage of that deer in daylight and I sat like, I don't know, it was 47, 48 nights in a row that summer in July and August trying to get footage of that animal. And I'm, there was a few nights where he'd come out just after dark and I could still see him in the binoculars, but I couldn't get any footage. And I predicted to a couple of my buddies that the, the nights that I would get 
actual footage of that deer in daylight right on that red moon. And I swear to you, as, as sure as I'm sitting here, those were the only couple of nights I got any daylight footage of that buck was right on the red moon. That was the only nights that buck would come out before right. before dark. And it's uncanny. I mean, you would observe it as a coincidence, but after you observe multiple coincidences, you're like, okay, there's something to this. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, those big bucks, even in summer when they know they're safe, they still don't like to be seen. I mean, you see a giant standing in a soybean field off the side of the road in the summer. All you got to do is pull your truck over and start watching them, and they're heading for the timber. I mean, they, they don't like to be seen, so right. they're not out there for the most part. You know, unless you're in a real isolated area, you know, they're not going to be out there every night. But right. uh, those are your best chances in the summer for catching those big deer. And, you know, I'll be heading to Iowa here at the end of this month to do some scouting, and I'm going on the red moon. I mean, I want to go right. when I've got my best chance of seeing those bucks out in those fields, and I'm not going to waste my time going any other time than during the red moon. Right. Fascinating. So I got to ask the question, what did you do before you read the book Moonstruck? What was your what was your strategy then? Man, it was just you know uh, had had a couple farms I hunted, put my stands up in a couple you know good spots, and it was just all you know basic hunting, hoping you know just hoping a deer would show up. You know, I was I was just deer hunting back then. I wasn't hunting specific animals like I am now. Right, and that's really for me. That's really what it's all about. I would rather I would rather be chasing a specific buck. Um, and playing that game with that animal, then, you know, have somebody say, you know, put me in this farm, you know, giant deer is going to be coming by this tree stand at this time. I, I'm just not into that. I, I want to be after a specific animal and I don't want to just climb up in a stand hoping, you know, I'm going to see a big deer come by. I mean, I, I really want to be concentrating on a, on a specific animal. That's really what gets me going anymore. Gotcha. All right. So your your strategies have changed because you're you're going after specific animals as opposed to random. Yeah, I mean if you think about it, you 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 increase your chances tenfold if you if you know, you know, of a specific animal that you're after being, you know, in the vicinity. I mean, it just changes the game. It's gonna make you sit and stand longer. It's gonna make you you know, be a little bit more careful with everything you do. It just changes it completely when you're on a, on a specific animal. If you're just, if, if you, if it, it doesn't matter if a guy wants to kill his first Pope and young buck or, or his first 200 inch deer, he's going to increase his chances, his chances tenfold. If he actually knows that that caliber of animal lives in the area that he hunts. Right. I mean, it sounds oversimplified, but that's the black and white of it. It, it sounds over oversimplified, but it, it, I think every every really good deer hunter has grasped this concept that you got to hunt where the deer are. Yeah, you, you can't if you won't kill a big deer if you don't hunt where they live. It's just it seems oversimplified, but it, I hear this over and over. And we've interviewed a lot of great hunters, and they pretty much all say the same thing: hunt where the deer are. Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> and then you know if you're if you're after. Uh, a boot and crockett deer, but you shoot the first 160 that comes by. And I'm not knocking anybody for shooting a 160. That's a big deer, no matter where you're hunting. But you can't expect to shoot a booner if you shoot the first 160 that comes by. And it, you know, it amazes me every every year. Guys, you know, well, I sure would like to shoot one that big, but yet they shoot the first nice deer that comes by. And 
I passed up a lot of good deer. And to me, I'd, you know, I would, um, I'd rather sit down and watch a, a, a hunting program where a guy's passing up a bunch of really nice animals that, you know, aren't quite in their prime than see a guy shoot something that is not in its prime just to have a kill on video. Right. I just, I don't get that at all. Gotcha. So let's, let's talk about, let's talk about the 200 inch deer. Was this, this seems to be as your, your webpage and you seem to be connected with the 200 inch deer club in essence. And it seems like that's the animal that you want to pursue. When did that occur for you? When did you decide that 200 was, was now the standard that you want to set for yourself? Well, I shot my first 200 inch deer, I believe it was 99. And the only reason that he was 200 inches when I killed him is because I had chased him for three or four years. And by the time I ended up getting an arrow in him, he was that big. It wasn't like I'd set out to kill a 200. I just, (laughs) I just wasn't able to put it together on that buck until, uh, I think the third or fourth year that I was hunting, I finally, I finally got him. And even after that, you know, it was just, you know, big giant deer. Um, the, the whole 200 thing didn't really click until I shot another one. And, um, I think that was probably around the time when Muzzy Broadheads had come out with their 200 club and guys were starting to talk about it and, um, you know, like North American whitetail. And it was just a very, you know, that was uh, the gold standard back then. Um, it was a very rare animal. Not too many guys had killed them. There was only a couple that had uh, shot multiple back then. And um, I can't really think of a specific event or a time where it clicked. But after I'd shot a couple of them, and I knew there was only a couple guys in the country that had, you know, I wanted to be, I wanted to be the only guy with three. And that just kind of, like I said, I don't really remember a specific event that happened, but it just became my focus. And, um, you know, in the last 10 years, there's been a, there's really been a big change in the whole hunting industry where, you know, the talk used to be about Boone and Crockett deer. Everybody wanted to shoot a Boone and Crockett. That was all anybody, everybody talked about. And right. it kind of right. switched in the last 10 years from Boone and Crockett's to 200 inch whitetails. So, right. That was when I got the idea for the the 200 brand and the and the Team 200 show. Um, yeah, I mean that's that's what everybody strives for these days. It, it, it has isn't that interesting that 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 is the the concept now. It's not the Boone and Crockett now. It's the 200. Yeah, it, it truly is. It, it is it's a different mindset. Mm-hmm. Right. Very interesting. So other than the Red Moon and your Moon Guide and just hunting where the 200 inch live. What other strategies do you use, A, to find 200-inch deer, and are there anything, are there other items that you pay attention to, specifically the wind? I'll tell you what, when it comes to the wind, um, my success on killing mature deer changed dramatically when I quit hunting winds that were good for me, and I started hunting winds that were good for the deer I was after. Okay. Because if you think about it, a big buck that's survived four, five, six years, and he knows he knows the game. That deer, chances are, during season, he's not going to get up and move during daylight in the evenings 
unless he's got the wind in his favor. If he doesn't, chances are he's just going to lay there in his bed until after dark. Right. You know, when you when you find a specific animal that you're targeting and you know he's there, you've done your scouting and your homework, you know where you need to be to kill that animal. If you can stay out of that area until you've got the wind and the moon in your favor, and when I'm talking about the wind, you know, I, I mean, giving him the giving him the wind so that he's comfortable enough to get up and move in the direction that he wants to with the wind in his face or at least a crosswind, something to where he feels comfortable enough to move. And then you add in the fact that he's got that that gravitational pull of the moon pulling him to get up at prime time when he wants to get up anyway. It's it's almost like it's not fair because you, don't, you every time you go into an area and try to kill a buck and you don't get it done, the game just got tougher. Mm. I would bet if you asked 100 hunters the same question, 99 of them would say the best time to kill a buck is the first time you hunt a stand. Right, right. So you stay out of that area. You know where you need to be to kill him. You don't tip him off. You wait until everything's lined up, and I'm all about stacking the deck in my favor because, you know, it's – to think that you can get within bow range of an animal that, that that's that hate to say the word intelligent i mean he's got it figured out right. you know that's how they get to be old but give him the wind give him uh wait for the perfect moon and and that buck is completely oblivious to you that you're in the area and onto him i think of the last uh 10 big deer that i've shot every single one of them was killed the first time in that's it's by far the best time, and I think, I think it, the thing that really hinders a lot of guys that they don't understand is when it comes to hunting a big, mature whitetail like that. The toughest part of it is actually not hunting them until everything <laughs> lines up. A lot of guys think it's deer season. You know, I know there's a big deer on my farm. I got to hunt. I got to hunt. Right. That's, you know, that's a very good point, right there. Yeah. Why would you put all that effort into finding a big buck? You know, leasing a piece of ground or whatever whatever you have to do, doing all that scouting, all that homework, all the trail cameras, everything, and then go into that spot before everything is perfect. You just don't get that many opportunities at a, at a big deer. And a lot of the times, the toughest part of it is not going in there as much as you want to until all that stuff's lined up. Because like I said, man, you go into a stand in that buck's core area, and even if you don't see him, chances are he's either seen you, heard you, smelled you, something. And those big deer will pattern you quicker than you pattern them. I mean, they're survival experts. So I don't want to go into that spot until I know everything is lined up and perfect. And like I said, nine times out of ten, if you got the discipline and the patience to do that and wait for everything to be lined up. Get it done most of the time the first time you go in there. Right. It was like Andre. I used to, when I worked for Lone Wolf Tree Stands, Andre DeQuisto, the original owner and inventor, it's, he, he summed it up perfectly. You want to go in there and surgically remove them from the face of the earth. <laughs> <laughs> and really, I, I plan my hunt like a, like a surgeon would plan surgery, you know? Right. <clears throat> There's a lot that goes into it That's on it. the location, how you get in and out of there. And just lining everything up, and it, that's really kind of how I look at it: is going in there and surgically removing them. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. What an interesting perspective! Surgically remove them from the face of the earth. Yeah. So, I can, and yeah, you can you can kind of see that. Like you wouldn't want a surgeon dancing around your 
your body somewhere just roaming around aimlessly, right? You, yeah. You want, yeah. You want a plan. A you want him to have a specific plan. He gets in there. He knows exactly what he's doing. Gets in there, gets out. Right. Right. And the only and preferably you only want to be operated on once. You don't want to exactly have multiple yeah. surgeries. It's a, it's a great analogy for, you know, if a guy really thinks about it, you know, that's really what your approach should be right. when you're trying to kill a big buck. I mean, you do all that homework planning. I mean, you, you want to have, you know, all your I's dotted and all your T's crossed. Right. Wow. What, do, what other tools do you use to determine where the big bucks roam? You know, when it comes to finding one, you know, forever in a day, it was all about, you know, shed hunting uh, in early season and scouting the, the bean fields in the summer to locate those big deer. And I've kind of concentrated over the years next to um, sanctuaries because you obviously, you know, you're talking about a four or five, six year old animal and for an animal to get that kind of age on them, they've got to have some kind of sanctuary where they can get away from hunting pressure. You know, whether that's, whether that's, uh, you know, some type of park or city limits, um, you know, any kind of area where they can escape hunting pressure to get that age. So I've concentrated on areas close to sanctuaries like that. Um, word of mouth, you know, I follow up on any, any big buck sighting, any, you know, any of my friends or family members, you know, tell me about but it's all about locating those bucks and it's it's gotten a little tougher over the years to find those deer in the summer in the bean fields because i can remember 20 years ago driving around columbus and you know pulling off the side of the road and seeing you know big deer in the bean fields and anymore you drive around and you see more trucks parked on the side of the road watching those fields so there's a lot more pressure and it's tougher to catch those deer in the summer so i've actually um had to kind of change my change my game plan from the from the summer scouting to more of the uh, use of trail cameras in specific areas and running minerals year round, you know, to locate those animals and to actually try to grow them, you know, as opposed to right. going out and finding them. Gotcha. Okay, so can't the trail camera is your friend? Oh yeah, if you're not using trail cameras, you're missing the boat. I mean. I've got trail cameras all across the <laughs> all across across the country in different states trying to locate animals. I mean, the, my biggest deer I've ever killed last year, two hundred and eighteen inch buck in Kansas. Not a deer that I knew anything about. Just happened to show up on some ground that I was hunting in Kansas, uh, end of October, and you know jumped in the truck and ran out there. And if it wasn't for trail cameras being out, you know almost year round looking for those animals. I would have never known that buck was there. Gotcha. Okay. Can you talk a little more in detail about what your belief about the, the wind being in the buck's favor, not in your favor? What does that mean specifically? And how focused are you on scent control once you figure out where to hunt? Yeah. When I say giving a buck the wind, um, it's, that's really what it is. You you want that deer to feel comfortable enough to get up and move during daylight. So you've got to give him the wind to his advantage. And what uh, what what you need to find is you need to find a weak spot on that buck's travel pattern where you can get within bow range of him while he's using the wind to his advantage. And I lose a lot of guys when I say that, and they're like, "How in the world do you find something like that?" Right. But 
you know, and it goes back to scouting. You know, you've got to do a lot of scouting and figure out these bucks travel patterns to be able to find that location. But it's usually, it's usually on some kind of um, turn or an area where they're pinched down and they've got to move through a specific spot. But if, if you pay attention to detail and you're following a buck's travel pattern, there will normally be a spot somewhere in that pattern where he's got to try and cheat the wind to get to where he wants to go, where he's going to have to drop his guard a little bit and cheat the wind in, in his travel pattern. Those are the spots where, you know, and it, it's even been where in, in my past experience where by the time that buck got within bow range of me, he was directly downwind of me, but you should have already had an arrow in him. I mean, it's a lot of times it's splitting hairs to that, you know, specific of a, of a, of a wind direction, but it's, it's all about finding that weak spot somewhere on his travel pattern where you can get within bow range of him while he's got the wind in his face. That deer feels those deer live and die by their nose. They trust their nose more than anything. You know, and if that buck is moving during daylight with the wind in his face and you can get within bow range of him, I mean, that's what I'm looking for. Like I said, those spots aren't easy to find. You've really got to, you got to throw everything out the window, get on that buck's trail, you know, walk those trails where his rubs and scrapes are. Really just think like that deer, you know, how would I move through this area and what wind direction would I have to feel safe? to move during daylight in the back of your mind thinking to yourself somebody's trying to get an arrow in me (laughs) you know what which direction am i going to want to go what kind of wind direction am i going to want to be able to to you know smell where i'm going and it's it's taking the whole thing to another level but really that's that's what you've got to do to figure out a big deer to be able to find a weak spot in this travel pattern okay all right. So. I don't know if that, I don't know if I explained that. Well, it, I, I think it almost needs like a, a visual uh, somehow, but, or maybe, maybe it just needs an experience. You know, you need to figure that out on your own, but the concept mm-hmm. is there. It's hard to visualize um, because it's, I mean, you're talking about. I've had to, I've had to draw it out and sketch it out for a lot of guys. Right. Right. And that makes sense. It seems like you'd have to know the terrain and know, <laughs> know the travel patterns. Mm-hmm. which is hard to do. I mean, you got to spend some time studying. You know, a good example of it is my very first 200 inch buck that I shot. You know, that deer was, that deer was living in a CRP field. So if you can imagine a CRP field and it's bordered by a wooded Creek, that's about 20 yards, 30 yards wide. And on the other side of that Creek is, is a soybean field. Mm-hmm. That's where the buck was feeding. And that deer was coming out of the CRP into the timber along the Creek Okay, and he's working that creek, working the edge of that soybean field east and west. All right, the creek runs east and west. The soybean field would be to the north and the bedding area to the south, just yeah. for no, example yeah. reasons. So if that deer is bedded in the CRP and he's got to move in a northern direction to get into the timber and to go into the CRP, you know, a north wind is blowing right from the food back into his bedding area. Right. So when he gets up and he goes into the timber and he starts moving east and west, he's got like a crosswind coming in. A north wind would be a crosswind blowing in from the food to the to timber. So he can smell that whole field and scent check that whole field. Right. Let's say that buck moved 
I think he was probably moving about 80 yards through that timber before he actually turned and went out into the bean field where I killed that buck was right on, right on that turn Okay. where he, where he stopped and was entering the field. He's walking into the field with a North wind, with the wind right in his face. If I would have walked down the edge of that field to get to my stand, my wind would have been blowing right back into the timber and right back into the bedding area where, where he was coming from. I, I circled that farm, came in from the opposite direction. So as I was walking the edge of that timber, my scent was still blowing right back into the bedding area, but it wasn't blowing into the area where he was laying. He was at the other end of the field. It would have been the west end of the CRP. I came in from the east. Right. So I kind of gave up half of that bedding area entering from the other direction, knowing knowing where that deer bedded. And when I got up into my tree stand, you know, I'm 100 yards east of where that buck's bedded. So he's laying in his bed. He's got an, I gave him a north wind. So that deer felt comfortable enough with that wind coming from the north to get up out of his bed, walked right into that timber with the wind in his face. He walked, you know, down through that timber, going east and west, being able to scent check that whole field. And when he turned to enter the field, I, that's right where I was at. And that, you know, that buck did basically did everything right. You know, he, he had, he had got up and walked right with the wind in his face, crosswind coming in from the field. So he could smell anything that was out in the field along the edge of the woods. And, you know, his weak spot was right where he turned to enter the field. He couldn't right. win me there. I was going to say, so you had to know where that buck generally bedded. You needed to know where that buck generally walked and their travel pattern. Then you had to know where they would normally turn to go into the field in order mm-hmm. to kill that deer. And that, yep. that's not easy. <laughs> that's not an easy thing to put together all the time. You know, it, it's not, but it, it's not rocket science either. I mean, True. you know, I, I went in there um, scouting, you know, in the in late winter, early spring, you know, it's it's normally an easy thing to find a, a big buck's bedding area, his core area, because it's going to be thick cover. There's going to be a concentration of rubs in the area because he spends the majority of his time in that area, and they make a lot of rubs early in, in, in the season, you know, September, October, after they shed their velvet. So there's going to be a concentration of rubs around where they bed. Mm-hmm. You know, the beds are hard, are easy to find, especially in like a CRP cover because, you know, everything's matted down to where they're laying at. So I, I would, and, and a lot of times you'll find their sheds there too you know, in those bedding areas, but had a really good idea where he was bedded. Um, You know, walking through that timber, it's easy to see what that buck's travel pattern is because there's rubs and scrapes all the way down through there. And, you know, it goes back to a lot of basic stuff. Just looking at the side of a tree that's rubbed on, you can tell, you know, what direction he's coming from and if it's made in the morning or the evening because, you know, the side of the tree he's rubbing on faces where he came from which is the bedding area so he's obviously using that in the evening getting up from from bed to head to the food source otherwise it would have been on the other side of the tree if he was coming from the food back into bed right right so you you decipher that information you know he had his scrape line down through there which um is easy to see early season you know before everything greens up and just putting all the pieces of the puzzle together it's yeah it's not um it's not easy, but yet, like I said, it's not rocket science for a guy that wants to spend the time really learning, right. um, you know, what these animals are doing. And you were putting together the puzzle almost what's eight months prior. It sounds like, yeah, 
Wow. Yeah. And then I, I do a lot of observation hunting. You know, if a lot of guys tell me they're not going to pay attention to the moon because they've only got a certain amount of time to hunt and it doesn't matter what the moon's doing when they're able to hunt, they're going to hunt. You know, and my response to that is if it's a bad moon night, that doesn't mean I'm sitting at home watching TV. I'm still hunting, but I might be hunting a, a different farm trying to learn the habits or patterns of a different buck or in this case you know if if the wind and the moon isn't correct that doesn't mean i'm not on that farm 300 yards away from the spot where i knew it'd be to kill him in a tree stand watching that buck and that's what i did to figure out where that buck was coming out into that bean field you know i'm sitting in a tree 300 yards away that buck's got no idea that i'm there and i'm watching that area develop and i'm looking for um i'm looking for that deer to make a mistake during daylight and to figure out what he's doing and where I need to be to kill him. You know, and that was something I picked up on in the Moonstruck book that Jeff had wrote. He had interviewed Miles Keller for that book, and he talked about his tactics of hunting from the outside in, which he would start out, you know, as far away as he could from a big deer that he was after. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't move in to kill that deer until he knew exactly what tree he needed to be in. And he might've moved his stand five or six times, getting a little bit closer each time until he had exactly what tree he needed to be in. He knew what, when he needed to kill that deer. And it was just from the outside in, you know, observing, and as you figure it out, you just keep moving closer and closer. And I've kind of incorporated that over the years into my strategies, whether it's in the summer or hunting during season is, you know, it's a bad moon night. I know I'm not going to be in my kill tree, but I might be across the field watching that spot. And that's how I'd picked up on, on where I needed to be to kill that deer. So, wow. Gotcha. All right. So this is, there's a observation aspect to hunting, not just the hunt that you're, you're putting in your playbook. For every day that I hunt during season, I'll spend 10 days scouting and observing. Okay. I actually scout and observe more than I hunt because when I actually move in to kill, like I said, I want to know the specific tree I need to be in. I'm in that weak spot where I need to be to kill that buck, and I'm not going to go in there until everything's right. But that, like I said, that doesn't mean I'm not out there on those bad nights. I'm still out there observing, watching, and trying to figure out those figure out the deer that I'm after. Right. Okay. That's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. So still being out there on the bad nights, but the bad nights means you're observing more than you're actually hunting. And then uh, mm-hmm. there are nights you're actually hunting to move into your kill spot. Yep. Wow. That's, that's worth its weight in gold. Very nice. Adam, let me, let me transfer over to the 10 rapid fire questions if we could. And okay. I, I didn't prep you for these, but I want to run down the 10 and, and more or less to get to know you a little better, a little better than, than what we just went through. So if you're ready, I'm ready. Yeah, go right ahead. All right. What's your number one hunting tip of all time? It's got to be the moon. Yeah. Killed 10 Boone and deer falling the moon. So that would probably be my biggest tip is to pay attention to lunar influences because there's only a handful of days every month where you really got your best opportunity to catch a big deer moving daylight. And, you know, the weather, weather will always trump the moon, but it can also amplify deer activity. But I just, you know, hunting for 35 years and really paying attention to the moon for the last 20 and seeing the significance and the impact that it has on mature animals, I can't think of anything that makes has made a bigger difference in my success than following that. 
Okay. Excellent. All right. We all have these things that we can't hunt without. Maybe it's a good luck charm. Maybe it actually makes us more successful and it drives us crazy if we leave it at home or in the truck when we're in the stand. What's that one thing for you? (laughs) (laughs) I don't really have any lucky charms other than uh, I'd have to say my my lone wolf stands. (laughs) I just, I won't hunt in anything other than, uh, than a lone wolf. Okay. Excellent. What's your biggest pet peeve in life? The biggest pet peeve in life. Hmm. Might have to come back to that one. Okay. Nothing's coming to me. All right. How old are you today, Adam? 50. 50. What would you tell a 25-year-old Adam Hayes knowing what you know today? Life is short. You know, you got to live every day like it's your last one. Right. Good advice. All right. You, uh, you're at a hunting convention somewhere in the world. You meet a stranger in the hotel lobby. And they strike up a conversation. They ask you what you do for a living. What do you say? <laughs> I, actually, I normally tell people that I'm in real estate because when you try to tell somebody that you have your own TV show, they either don't believe you or they, you know, they've got a thousand questions after that. So, <laughs> good point. And I'm not one of those guys that like to talk a lot about myself. So I normally just say I'm into real estate, which I am. It's not a lie, but. Right. And then they just walk away when you say they're here into real estate. <laughs> uh, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Scrambled eggs. Excellent. One of my favorites. All right. You get your own billboard on the side of a highway. It's a blank canvas. You can put anything you want on it. What would it say? Wow. These are some good questions. Yeah. These are heavy duty. I'm not kidding. Uh, it would probably say Trump. <laughs> <laughs> That's the second time we've had that answer recently. All right, very good. Uh, if I God, say, God, God bless Donald Trump. God bless Donald Trump. That's funny. <laughs> All right, if I uh, if I say the word successful to you, and this might be the same answer, I don't know. If I say the word successful to you, who's the first person that pops in your head and why? Mm, another good one. Good grief. I guess honestly, a few of my closest friends. Um, I've got some really good friends that have been really successful and they're really good people and they're very good role models. Um, I'm not going to mention any names, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm been fortunate to meet some really good people in the, in my lifetime. And uh, a few of my closest friends, like I said, they're, they're very successful in everything they do and they're great people. And I try to surround myself with people like that and that, uh, yeah, strive to be more like those guys for sure. Okay. Very good. All right. What's a day in your life look like? Man, most of my days are, are right here sitting behind my desk, um, sitting in front of the computer, trying to uh, keep my head above water with, with the TV show and the moon guide and, and the leasing program. <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's, I get bombarded every day from three or four different directions with all four different things I'm working on. So some days I feel like that's all I'm doing is keeping my head above water, but it's nonstop on the computer and on the phone on a daily basis with uh, everything I got going on. Gotcha. All right. And then what's a deer hunting day in your life look like? You know, most, uh, most days during hunting season, I, I try to, um, be in a stand every day. You know, I'm not a big morning hunter like, um, I used to be when I first started when it comes to early and late season, uh, mornings are tough, man, because you just never know where the deer are at going in blind in the dark. So, um, 
I'm, I'm a big advocate of waiting until I have a good moon an hour or two hours after daylight before I'll even attempt to go into a buck's bedding area. So actually during hunting season, um, most of my days are spent the first half of the day with uh, obligations for work and everything I've got going on. And then the afternoons, I'll be in a stand. Whether I'm hunting or observing, I'll be in a stand every night. But don't really spend a whole lot of mornings hunting, you know, until November rolls around. And then it's all about hours in the stand. So. Okay. All right. All right. And then let's circle back to number three. What's your biggest pet peeve? <sighs> you never even gave me a chance to think about that one. <laughs> <laughs> Probably people that drive the speed limit in the passing lane. <laughs> that is a very common answer. Oh my gosh, that drives me nuts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's uh that's a good one. That is definitely I don't know one. if that's my biggest one, but that's one that I cannot stand. Okay. That's up there. Definitely up there. Well, Adam, this has been a pleasure. Where can we find more information about you and your moon guide and uh your your videos and your your television show? You can get any information you need on the TV show on uh, the website 200inch.com or the Team 200 Facebook page. Uh, you can get information on the Moon Guide at moonguide.com or Moon Guide on Facebook. You can get information on my leasing program at trophyhuntleasing.com for hunt leases in Ohio. And, uh, yeah, anybody has any questions or wants to pick my brain a little bit about anything we talked about today, they can message me on Facebook. I try to I try to answer and, and make time uh, for anybody that's really interested in, in talking deer hunting or understanding the moon guide. Or um, I get bombarded with emails and texts during hunting season with guys that have got a big deer they're after and they need some help. So <laughs> not, not a whole lot I can do over the phone, but right. I, I try to make time to, to talk to everybody that I can. So Gotcha. Well, excellent. Adam, this has been an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you on our show. And thank you for taking the time to break down all your strategies and tips. I think it'll be most useful for our listeners. And I can't thank you enough. Oh, I thank you, man. And I, I hope there was uh, a little piece of something somewhere that helps, uh, helps somebody, you know, put another piece to the puzzle together. I'm sure, I'm sure there were several, actually. <laughs> Go back and listen. It'll help many a hunter. Yeah, hope so, man. That's why I do it. Well, thank you to Adam Hayes for joining us on the Big Buck Podcast. That was an interview I thoroughly enjoyed. I uh, absolutely love how he explained to us how he surgically dissects 200-inch deer from the face of the planet. I can't thank him enough for sharing all his little secrets. It's not every day you get somebody that can kill a 200-inch deer that will sit down and actually share all the little secrets that he uses to, to put that together. And as you can see, it's a lot of work, and it's not exactly just walking out in the woods. It's a lot of planning. It's going after the buck that you want and then learning their habits. And Adam just pieced it together perfectly for us in his description during the interview. So thanks again. Dusty, do we have a Chubby Tines tip of the week this week? We do. And, and, and I'm going outside uh, what I normally would talk about a little bit, Jay, going into my personal hunting experience and, and one of my favorite all-time things to do. The Chubby Tines tip of the week is sponsored by Morse's Sporting Goods. Firearms, use firearms, bows, use bows. Located at 85 Kentucky Falls Road in Hillsborough, New Hampshire. Give Jim a call at 603-464-3444, morsesportinggoods.com. Your dollars go further in New Hampshire. There's no sales tax. Morse's Sporting Goods.
this time of year, I take and just grab one of your articles of hunting clothing. Don't put no scent okay. spray on it. Don't put nothing on it. And it's something that maybe you're retiring or you're not no longer going to use. Or take it out and just set it in your tree stand. Hmm. And the reason why is the, the the deer over time will adjust to smelling something new or fresh. Or you figure you go all year to hunting season. What do you do? You climb up in your stand. Let's say October. Right. Some people September. That right there is a fresh new thing in the tree stand. Right. You know, let's let's keep them on the same smells the whole year. Right. So take an oracle of clothing. Don't juice it up with scent cover or anything like that. But you can use anything that you plan to use this September for spray-wise, squirt it on there. Yep. That way they, they are somewhat adjusted to that smell. Regardless of what you're spraying, it still stinks. Gotcha. So you're you're basically telling has them. has an odor. You're educating them to the fact that this particular smell that is unique to you is not to be feared. That's exactly right. So if they come in and they're eating on, let's say you're putting out corn, mineral side, you're hunting over mineral side or water area, put something out there that smells like you right now. That's a great idea. I've never thought. That way, thought, October, right. September, October, you climb that tree stand, you're not just scaring the death out of these deer. Right. There's nothing to alert them. You know, everybody says scent lock, scent blocker, cover sprays, ozonics, all that. I mean, you know, it all works. Don't get me wrong. Right. But it's that initial hit of it that they can't adjust to right right away. Right. Dude, that's awesome. That's a great tip. I love that. Very nice. Yeah. Very, very cool. Well, thank you to Morse Sporting Goods for sponsoring the Chubby Tines Tip of the Week. And I'd also like to say thank you to all of our sponsors. Without them, this show is not possible. And specifically, I'd like to say thank you to Advanced Takedown Tree Stands, Covert Scouting Cameras, the Horny Buck Seed Company, the Euro Hanger, and once again, Morse Sporting Goods. And I truly believe in each and every product that we're advertising on this show. We've tried them all. We've been to the stores. Each and every one are absolutely high-quality, high-grade products. And if you're shopping for any one of these types of items, please give our sponsors a shot first. Dusty, where can we find you when you're not hanging out here in the studios with me? Uh, Shoot me an email, dusty at bigbuckregistry.com. You can look me up on Instagram and Twitter at Chasing Antler, facebook.com forward slash chubby tines outdoors. Jay, where can the people reach out to you when you're not on the mic? Likewise, you can shoot me an email, jay at bigbuckregistry.com, and you can visit us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash bigbuckregistry. We're also on Twitter, which is twitter.com forward slash bigbuckregistry. We're also on Instagram, instagram.com forward slash bigbuckregistry, and YouTube, which is youtube.com forward slash bigbuckregistry. On YouTube, you can listen to all of our podcasts in their entirety. As far as videos are concerned, it's a boring video, but the audio content is there, so you can actually listen to our podcast. You can also listen to all of our live shows that we've done on Thursday nights when we do do them, and we've gone back and interviewed, re-interviewed a lot of our previous guests we had on the show just to put a face to a voice, let's put it that way. You can always listen to our show on other places as well, not just YouTube. We're found on iTunes, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, and Blueberry. And if you would like to submit a buck to our page for consideration and be featured on our page in front of 250,000 diehard deer hunting fans, all you have to do is go to bigbuckregistry.com forward slash my buck and all of the instructions will be right there. I think that's pretty much everywhere we're at. Just want to give one more shout out to all of our sponsors, Advanced Takedown Tree Stands, Covert Scouting Cameras, The Horny Buck Seat Company, The Euro Hanger, and Morse Sporting Goods. I think that's a wrap, Dusty. That's a whole lot of big buck, Jay. Sure is. I'm Jay Scott. I'm Dusty Phillips. 
and this is the Big Buck Registries Deer Hunting Podcast. We'll see you next week. Can't wait.